right now on Matter of Fact. I can't breathe! I, I can't, can't breathe. breathe! Americans pause to reflect on our traumatized nation. It doesn't mean I'm violent, man. It means I've had enough. The scars inflicted by racism and violence. Our bodies equip us to survive whatever the circumstances were uh, that harmed the generation prior. What will it take to heal the collective wounds of racial injustice? Plus, she served a two-year prison sentence for wire fraud. I was a black woman, lawyer, who was doing a lot of work in the community, and I really became frightened to tell anybody that I'd made a mistake. Meet the woman whose time behind bars turned into a campaign, a plea for the president to grant clemency to 100 women in 100 days, and a film about Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers makes Oscar history and begs the question. Do you think that art can further divide us or bring us together? I mean, I don't think you could divide us more. <laughs> Director Shaka King on the power of storytelling in America. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is often quoted as saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. If history is our teacher, that long arc is often marked by tragedy. As America watched the trial and conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd over the last three weeks, at least 64 people died at the hands of police. That's according to a New York Times analysis. Of those killed, more than half were black or Latino. Each event re-traumatizing anyone who can identify with the history of racial exclusion and police violence. Dr. Stephen Nifley is a clinical psychologist and faculty member at Spalding University in Louisville, Kentucky. He leads the Collective Care Center, specializing in treating race-based trauma. Dr. Stephen Nifley, what a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. Um, can you start with a, a definition of traumatized communities? How do you transmit trauma over the generations? There are um, both psychological and physical and relational ways in which we transmit uh, certain aspects of trauma. From an evolutionary standpoint, our bodies equip us with the skills and tools that are needed in order to be able to survive whatever the circumstances were uh, that harmed the generation prior. And so if we think about some of the physical tools, there's this hormone in our body called cortisol. And what cortisol does is it helps us to fight, flight, or freeze in challenging or dangerous situations. And what we know specifically for black and brown folks is that those individuals typically have higher levels of cortisol compared to the average person. The reason why that happens is because uh, if we go back all the way to slavery times and some of the challenges that folks were experiencing there, and then relationally, we translate certain narratives. Uh, in the black community, we refer to those as uh, racial legacy messages, uh, where we try to teach folks uh, ways to prepare themselves uh, for dangerous events that might come about. I know you focus a lot on African-American communities, but is this a conversation, this generational trauma that happens in other communities as well? Yes, yes, it does. Um, so various marginalized communities uh, have had their own experiences when it comes to the generational transmission uh, of trauma. Uh, so for example, uh, this, this kind of research around intergenerational transmission of trauma originally started uh, with those individuals that identify with the Jewish heritage. 
um, whose ancestors had uh, experienced and survived the Holocaust. And uh, the trauma that they experienced would be seen in terms of symptoms uh, three, four generations later. And so the same levels of, of hypervigilance, the same levels of anxiety, the same levels of, of sadness, all those have been passed down uh, for folks that hadn't encountered uh, the atrocities of the Holocaust themselves, but were still experiencing the same type of uh, psychological and uh, physical symptoms. This past year, we've seen, I think, lots of things that would induce trauma to lots of different people. Obviously, economic crisis, we've got the pandemic, police brutality. Does trauma accumulate or do you just sort of go through it sort of one incident at a time? It absolutely accumulates. If we think about this idea of, of generational trauma, uh, many of us are holding the legacies of trauma that uh, have been passed down to us from our ancestors. And so because we've all encountered this skill set com called compartmentalization as a way for us to deal with certain circumstances and challenges, uh, we've all learned this idea of tucking away tra uh, trauma into boxes as a way to deal with it at a later time. But what we found is that we never actually get around to dealing with whatever that trauma is. Instead, we just pass it down to the next generation who then also compartmentalizes because that's the skills that they learn and then pass it down to the next generation, et cetera. And so in today's time, with this intersectional experience of the pandemic and police shootings and other forms of racism and discrimination, uh, we're holding all of these boxes that we've accumulated over time that essentially consist of all the trauma that our ancestors to this point have endured. Dr. Stephen Nifley, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here. Next on Matter of Fact. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. A Best Picture nominee makes Oscar history on screen and off. Director Shaka King talks with Soledad about correcting history's take on Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers and why it matters. And later, factories, cars, farms, all spewing carbon emissions. Could this giant vacuum help clear the air? Hollywood's award season is well underway and the Oscars are making history with the nomination of Judas and the Black Messiah for Best Picture. It's the first Best Picture nominee to have all black producers and its director, Shaka King, is one of the movie's four writers, all nominated for Best Original Screenplay. The movie tells the story of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and the FBI informant William O'Neill, who infiltrated the movement. Hampton was 21 years old when he was shot and killed by police in 1969 while he lay in his bed. Take a look at this clip. It's not a, it's not a question of violence or nonviolence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. I spoke to Shaka King recently for the Matter of Fact listening tour, and I asked him about the importance of telling this story now. Shaka King, it's so nice to have you with us. Thanks for talking. Thank you. What was the story you were trying to tell with Judas and the Black Messiah? I mean, um, obviously the story of Fred Hampton, but, yeah, but much uh, more than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately 
when you kind of distill it in a lot of ways, it's a look at, you know, two people in William O'Neill and Fred Hampton who had two very different definitions of freedom and power and two very different ways of going about attaining them. And so it was an exploration of what do those look like in a lot of ways. You said, I really do think Fred and the Panthers had the answers. What were the answers and to what questions? I think to start with, um, just their approach to kind of looking at the ills of society through a class dynamic, but obviously recognizing that black folks were, were at the bottom and remain at the bottom in terms of, you know, American apartheid. They didn't separate the two. Like, they very much were, look, we got to take care of people in our community, but we also need to ally with people, poor people in other communities across the globe, um, because if we do so, then we'll win. Who do you think of as your audience? It's tricky because my entire career, I've always prioritized first myself. But when you, you know, you're making a movie at, at this scope and you're talking about, you know, an organization that has been vilified historically, you have to do a lot of contextualizing, not just for a quote unquote general audience, which is essentially a white audience, but also for you know, young black people who have never even heard of the Black Panthers or who haven't been taught about this history, uh, and individuals who have been taught but just have been taught mistruths. Do you think the arts have a role in strengthening the American narrative? I think art is just another way of telling stories and it's another way of teaching us about, you know, ourselves. Do you think that art can further divide us? or bring us together? I mean, I don't think you could divide us more. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, like, uh, people have made kind of their decisions in a lot of ways as to what they believe. Uh, so it's very hard for art to, I think, pierce that sort of shell of <laughs> uh, almost stubbornness that people have. It's, I think it's hard in a lot of ways to, to reach people with a different perspective than the one you already have. Nobody ever asks white filmmakers, what's your responsibility to the white community? Do you have a burden of, of depicting white people in a certain way? But I've asked lots of black filmmakers that because I think it's, it is different. Do you think about it? Um, I think it's an opportunity. I've never thought of it as a burden whatsoever to be black. Um, or to be a black artist uh, invested in stories featuring and about black people. And I think all I ever feel is a desire to be as specific as I can in telling those stories so that the art is as potent as, it, as, as I want it to be. Shaka King, so nice to have you. Thanks for talking with Thank me. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was great. He's just one of the guests we talked to in our recent special, To Be an American, Identity, Race, and Justice. You can hear from guests Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter and creator of the 1619 Project, comedian Gina Brion, and Native American activist Nikki Petrie. You can stream the full series on matteroffact.tv. Coming up, the story behind a woman's plea to President Biden for clemency for 100 women in 100 days, and a household appliance giving scientists inspiration. We'll show you how a carbon vacuum 
could help curb climate change. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Re-examining our justice system includes going inside prison walls to talk to the incarcerated. And just like many parts of our justice system, the racial breakdown shows a disproportionate number. While black people make up about 12% of the U.S. population, they make up 33% of the prison population. Black women are 1.7 times more likely to be incarcerated than white women, many serving decades-long sentences for drug-related crimes. Andrea James is the founder and executive director of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Her organization is calling on President Biden to grant clemency to 100 women in his first 100 days in office. Andrea James, so nice to have a chance to talk to you. Um, you were working in the criminal justice system for a long while uh, before you yourself went to prison. Tell me a little bit about your backstory, the work you were doing, and then what eventually brought you into prison. I uh, started out as a lawyer uh, uh, here in uh, Roxbury, in Boston, in the courts here in Massachusetts, in uh, defending people with criminal matters as a criminal defense attorney, and then slowly was uh, brought into the real estate conveyance practice, and um, I represented banks. And I got in trouble doing that work and through a real estate conveyance transgression that I was afraid to tell anybody. I was a black woman lawyer um, who uh, was doing a lot of work in the community. And I really became frightened to tell anybody that I'd made a mistake. And then I made it worse by trying to fix the mistake myself. And so I ended up serving a two-year federal prison sentence for wire fraud. So talk to me a little bit about what you left behind when you went off to prison? And I ask because I think it's relevant to the work that you're doing now. 85% of currently incarcerated women, whether it's county jail, state prison, or federal prison, and immigration detention prisons are mothers. They have children. And so I left behind two young adult daughters, one who was out of college at the time, the other who was in college. And then I had a 12-year-old daughter, and I just had my last child my son, who at the time was five going on six months old. And when you leave a children that are young, particularly newborns, you really uh, begin to understand the further harm that separation of mothers from their children, unnecessary separation of mothers from their children due to incarceration causes. I think there are plenty of people who would say, well, if you've committed a crime, then too bad. You should have thought about your kids. You should have thought about what you were leaving behind. Most of the transgressions that women are convicted of are transgressions that are situational. They are either in relation to poverty, to access to food, housing, an opportunity to care for their children. We see that in a number of the drug convictions that women are looking for a way to earn income so that they can just simply buy pampers. They can just simply care for their children. Many people, not just women, but many people who cause harm to other people, it's a situation that could have been uh, avoided had we uh, made more investment in treatment, in drug and alcohol treatment, in mental health, in finding ways to get to the root causes of people and the transgressions that they cause without using and putting prisons on the table. 
Final question for you. How likely is it, do you think, in fact, that President Biden in his first 100 days will um, will do what you're asking him in terms of clemency for women? This is not a huge ask, and it's a necessary ask. It's what we need in this country. He has been lifting up racial justice in this country. Well, there's been a significant racial injustice when it comes to the incarceration of predominantly black and brown women in this country, in the federal system. And clemency for us is racial justice. Andrea James, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for caring about this issue. Still ahead, the Supreme Court case that could make it easier to hide the names of the biggest campaign donors in both parties. To stay up to date with our top stories, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe at matteroffact.tv. Now to a segment we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. On Monday, the Supreme Court will hear a case that could change the rules when it comes to reporting political contributions, at least for corporations. The case, Americans for Prosperity versus Rodriguez, could make it easier to hide the names of people who are donating large sums of money to influence policy and elections. Why does it matter? Well, 10 years ago, the court issued a ruling known as Citizens United, and that ruling made it possible for corporations to spend unlimited money on behalf of candidates and causes. However, the justices kept a requirement that those corporations had to disclose their major funders. So what's the difference between your contributions and those of a corporation? Well, you're limited to giving $2,800 directly to a candidate. Federal law says that any donation over $200 requires disclosure of your name, address, occupation, and employer information. It all becomes public record. Those same rules apply to corporations unless the court changes course this time around. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, pardon us, but here's an idea that sucks. Literally, could this giant vacuum reduce our carbon footprint? Finally, the Biden administration celebrated Earth Day by announcing a new goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. To do that, they need to find a solution for carbon removal to help slow down climate change. A European company may have the answer inspired by a household item, your vacuum. Climeworks has created a giant vacuum that collect 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide in a year. A fan draws the carbon into a collector where it's filtered and heated. Where does it go? Well, the CO2 is mixed with water and then pumped deep underground. It reacts with the basalt rock and turns into stone within a few years. Now, that sounds far-fetched, but the vacuums have been installed for use in Iceland, where scientists have recorded rising temperatures. Billionaire Elon Musk just announced a $100 million contest to inspire inventors to create other carbon removal projects. Gonna be hard, though, to top those giant vacuums. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I will see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the impact of racial trauma across the generations, our interview with director Shaka King about his Oscar-nominated movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, or our conversation about women in prison, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.